Welcome to Laws and Order, the podcast where two crime-loving sisters go through Law and Order SVU episode by episode. I am your host, Amanda. And I'm Maka. On episode three, called Or Just Look Like One. The scene opens up with an elderly woman being lifted off an ambulance on a stretcher at the hospital. And she's telling the doctor, I think I've got the AIDS again and a heart attack. And the doctor says, and the Ebola, which we thought was funny because the Ebola was something people were just talking about within the last few years. Specifically in Dallas. There was that outbreak at the hospital in Dallas where I live. And the elderly woman says, your pills cleared that all up. She clearly has, like, dementia or something. So, but while that's happening, a black SUV slamming on the horn in the background. And the doctor told the EMT, go see what their problem is. And he yells, this is a hospital. And the SUV drives off. And then we see... A woman fully covered in wounds from head to toe, head to toe bleeding. So this case is a little more brutal than each case this far. And then the next scene, it's Stabler and Benson in the hospital room, and the police officer walks in to notify them that the found the girl's school ID. Her name is Teresa. And she's from Queens. And by school ID, it's her high school ID. So we know she's quite young. The doctor walks in and says that she had a vicious attack. There's double puncture wounds that look like a set of two. So maybe it was a claw hammer. And Benson asks if she's going to pull through. The doctor says, I stitched over 30 separate wounds before I stopped counting. Face, breast, genitals, the puncture wounds will heal. An apparent amphetamine overdose worries me more. CNS damage worries me more. The respirators are doing the breathing for her. There's something else. She was raped with a wooden object. So then she starts holding this little bitty jar with little splinters in it. That they extracted from her body. They're back at the office. Cragen... Um, notifies them that she's a 16-year-old model and they found her portfolio in her book, in her book bag. Um, Benson and Stabler give the rundown of what they know to everyone. She was dumped at approximately 3.33 a.m. And this is episode three and my favorite number is three. That is just a side note. From me personally. (laughs) She's presently in a coma because of prescription amphetamines, which were also found in her backpack, which is consistent with the overdose she suffered. So now they know exactly what she took. Monique says it's someone that knows her. And Munch says, well, give us a name and address so we can go home early. Monique ignores them. Face, breast, genitals, that's all saying, bitch, I'm going to erase you. 
and then drops her off at the ER. It's a classic sign of remorse and familiarity. And, and Benson then, says, yeah. it could be one-way familiarity, like some loser fantasize a relationship with her. Cragen says, like Mark David Chapman thought he had a relationship with John Lennon. That's the man that murdered John, in case anyone doesn't know. <laughs> um, and then Teresa, someone apparently who's like that girl that you recognize from li- every little thing, like billboards and catalogs. And then according to her day book, her last appointment was a photo shoot from that day. And then Cregan asks where the family is on this. And Stabler, the mother lives in upstate and hasn't returned our messages. Benson, the father, said he was home in Queens at the time. And Cregan's like, well, his 16-year-old daughter was roaming the streets at 3 in the morning. Stabler, tell me about it. He's now at the hospital. And then Cragen sends them off to interview him. Be sympathetic, but not too. So they go to the intensive care unit and they meet the father and he calls the city a cesspool. Benson says, unfortunately, these things can happen anywhere. Stabler says, especially late at night with a minor. So he calls her Jasmine and they're like, wait, what? And then the father's like, well, we changed her name for, so it could be trademarked. Benson's like, kind of like Jewel or Cher. Sounds silly now, doesn't it? But we had big plans together. So he mentions the father, mentions that he drops her off at the shoot around six and says that they don't like parents hanging around, so he left. He says, I should have called. I was worried sick, but I didn't want to seem like a troublemaker. Stabler, you wonder where your daughter is at 3 a.m. in the morning and you're worried about being a troublemaker? Don't you think I know how foolish this sounds? My beautiful daughter, she wanted to become something. Her agent said I shouldn't worry, and I trusted her. Her agent's name is Nina Lazo. And then we cut to the Lazlo agency. Um, and while they're interviewing Nina... She's already speaking of Jasmine in past tense, which they make a note of. Um, she's the typical too busy to talk to kind of character. She denies being the victim chaperone when they ask where she was. And she says, I rep 150 models. And then they ask about if Jasmine was the lead on the shoe. And she says, yes, but there are eight other girls. They went to, uh, she said she stopped by the set. Everything looked okay. And she left her own 10. And Can I then, just mention who Nina was first off? Oh, yeah. Because this is my favorite part of watching these old episodes is watching like all the celebrity appearances and like before they got famous. But I mean, this lady was already famous. Um, this is BB Newith. She is from Cheers, which I just binge watched that whole series like a psycho over the last probably year and a half. And she's from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And her character reminds me so much of what we saw in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You know, she's just, you know, hoity toity and super busy and fancy and all the things. 
Bunsen says the doctor said she was using Anna. Why can't I say this word? Well, whatever. She was on drugs. <laughs> she was on speed. <laughs> Nina O. Stabler, you know, did you know anything about that, Nina? No. Benson, who was in charge after you left? Nina says, in charge in what sense? The sense that you had an underage models working after midnight. So who was in charge? And Nina says, I suppose the photographer Carlo. Stabler, Stabler goes, we're are we boring you, Miss Laszlo? Nina, yeah, a little. This is a huge business detective. My job is to represent these girls who will do whatever it takes to get where they want to be. Benson, does that include the emergency in Roosevelt Hospital? Nina, please. As she puts on her, it looks like a Britney Spears like headset when you like like a hands-free headset when you go dancing. <laughs> And then as they're leaving, Benson turns around and goes, what kind of car do you drive? And she says, Acura, white. And I know you had, like, asked me about previously about the timeline, if that makes sense, to start at 6 p.m. and then go to 3 a.m. Maka has worked on so many types of photo shoots. (laughs) So I was asking her... Does this make sense? Like, does do photo shoots usually start this late and like last all night long? And they can, but a lot of times, if a girl is like underage and they were in that scenario, I think that they would have someone from their agency there with them because I have a friend who used to do that, he works at an agency and he would be the one who would take girls to places and then make sure, like, just wait around. He all, he didn't necessarily go in with them, but he would, like, make sure they got there and took them home. And he said that even one time he took someone to meet Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and then they were like, get that girl out of there. So he's like, we got to go. <laughs> so wait. Would he do that if a parent was there, or does he? He's go the replacement because... parent. Okay, so if a parent was there, he wouldn't have to do it. I don't know that for sure. Because I've worked with 16, 17 year olds' age, and they don't have a parent there. But then I've worked with people. I guess it depends because I've had parents on set, but they're usually. Like under sixteen, if a parent's on set. Mm. But like, definitely worked with seventeen-year-olds without, cause without any supervision. But that's like a normal daytime shoe. I think if it was editorial and not for a brand, that's when things can probably be more shady. So they want someone there. Yeah. But this is also 1999, so who knows? (laughs) Um, So now we're going to transition to a pier where there's a a photo shoot happening. They're going to go find Carlo and, you know, question him about what the heck happened. 
And a stabler calls his name as they're shooting on a dock in an all-white, like, everything is white on white, just like today. Like, literally, they're wearing Reebok, like, classic white Reebok shoes, silky tops. Like, the only thing weird was, like, some random ones were wearing sailor hats, so it was a little cheesy. (laughs) But... Um, Besides that, it could be in a magazine today. They asked, did you photograph Jasmine Monday night? And he said, yeah, we need you to account for her comings and goings. And Carlo said, good luck. Let's start again, Carlo. You need to account for while taking off (laughs) Stabler, like sexually takes off his sunnies. Um, let's start again. You need to account for her, her comings and going, I guess. Um, all right. Her father dropped her off for hair and makeup around six. I think we got around, we got going around midnight and we wrapped up three or four. Well, what time did Jasmine leave? And Carlos says, I don't remember. I know I finished with her early. But when I'm shooting, I go, all right, brain. (laughs) Benson, does she have a friend or someone who would know where her whereabouts? On set, there's so much energy. You're wired. It's all a blur after a while. Stabler, adrenaline or methadone? Methadone. And he goes, and uh, Carlos says, I run a clean set. I've been off everything. I haven't been on anything but a cappuccino for 17 months and four days. And then how about the girls, Stabler asks. This is Juliana, New York. I thought you guys won the war on drugs, eh? And then they ask, what kind of car do you drive? And he says, a Porsche Baxter then excuses himself back to shooting his all whites, his all white on white shoot. His puff daddy. Remember when P Diddy used to have like an all white party in the Hamptons every year? I mean, what's funny is now the biggest trend is white on white on white. (laughs) That was probably, yeah. I'm just like, this just reminds me of the Hampton party that you would like see pictures of. So then um, Benson turns around and she walks straight up to someone that you think maybe is assistant or someone that works alongside him and says, you look familiar to me. And the woman said, I did a lot of modeling when I was younger. Benson's like, "Mm, that's not it. The Ricky Blaine case, you testified against him. The woman says, you have a pretty good memory. A lot of girls testified against the measuring man. And Stabler said, who's that? Woman, skank. This guy who would pose as a modeling scout and tell little girls he needed their measurements. And then Benson says he'd get their confidence and then force himself on them. He did it for years, and he'd threaten the girls if they ever told that they'd never work again. Finally, they made a case against him, and he's doing time. The woman says, not anymore. He got a couple of weeks. He got out a couple of weeks ago. I got a postcard for 20 cents for victim rights. So then they're like, 
oh, maybe we should go check on Measuring Man if he's out. So then the next scene is they're in a mechanic's office and they walk right up to him and they immediately notice a hammer and they take that away. And he's like, I've got, I'm going to have to pay for that. And they're like, cool. He said, this isn't fair. I'm clean. I have a job. Benson said, you have a nasty habit of roughing up pretty women. He goes, that was years ago. (laughs) Old habits die hard. You measure them, you get to know them and beat the crap out of them. And he measure man says, call my PO. I haven't touched a piece of tape in years. Stabler said, you know what, measuring man? We did just that. And he said, you're a half hour late to your Monday check-in. And he also said, next time you're tardy, you're going to have to spend a little time in the catacombs. So I Googled what the catacombs are. And it says, the catacombs are like the thing in Paris when you go and it has like all the skeletons. You go underground and it's actual underneath the church, actual people skeletons. In the U.S., we only have one, and it's in New York, and it's under the St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, and you can do a tour by candlelight, but you will not see any dead bodies because they are buried in the wall, and apparently, by reviews, there's no one that exciting. New Yorkers seem to love it. Tourists seem to hate it, and I think it's about $35, and it's two hours long. So if that's something you're interested in, do it. If two hours seems too long, don't do it. Anyways, the measure man said, Monday night, right? Is this about that creamy, complected sweetie who got attacked with a grit? And he says that with a grin. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I saw it in WWD, which are Women's Wear Daily. Benson, did you know her? He goes, mm-mm. Actually, I don't think he said mm. I think I wrote, I think I wrote MM for measure, man. <laughs> he says, sure, her Kmart underwear ads were primo money spank fuel. Benson says, great. Where were you Monday? (laughs) He says, "Mm," says, we were watching football at the halfway house. Benson, really? Then who was playing? The Jets and the Steelers. Try again. It was the Cowboys and 49ers. And mm, says, we must have been talking during the game, you know. And then he just like changes the subject at Benson. You've got great bone structure. What are you, a 34, 25, 36, an A cup? I still know people in the business. If you'd like, I could make a couple of calls for you. And he goes to stroke her hair and she knees him in and says, and he falls to the ground. And she goes, Ricky, empty your pockets. And if we find a measuring tape in there, we're going to take you in on a parole violation. <laughs> and I really want to know if that's a real thing. <laughs> Maybe if you're the measuring man. <laughs> like, we don't even know the guy's name. We just... 
<laughs> so we're going to go back to the office where Munch and Cassidy are giving the info that they've sourced from other models on the shoot. Munch says, your Vic Jasmine was booted from a photo shoot around midnight for failing a weigh-in. The photographer, Carlo, he weighs all his models right in front of each other, and she was 5'10", 5'7", 110 pounds. He told her to come back when she lost 8 pounds. He kicked her out at midnight. She hung around for a while to make some weepy phone calls. Then she went to the photographer's private office. Stabler says, why? Munch says, apparently arguing for the job. Because when he came out, she was crying and insulting his parentage, which I googled what that means. And that's basically like where you're from because he's foreign. So he told her to pack it in. Stabler, any drugs at the shoot? Cassidy, none of the girls at the shoot remember seeing anything. Munch says, which means they're all using Cassidy. They said she left with a girlfriend. Vanessa Wong. They're still looking for her. Stabler says, girlfriend, how? Which is so funny because this is so 90s to be like, huh? Munch says, well, they're not Katie Lang fans, if that's what you mean. Which Katie, what he means is they're not lesbians. Because apparently Katie Lang is lesbian. Well, Stabler can't just say, like, girlfriend because it can't just be a girl and that's a friend. You can't say that to him. He's like, huh? And so then they're like, all right, let's go to Vanessa's apartment. And they're walking to her and Stabler's briefing Benson being like, you want to know what drugs she was taking? You want to know if she's sexually active? And Benson goes, the girl's going to know because girlfriends have no secrets. And Stabler says, sounds like a song. And I wish that we were talented enough to make that a song and, um, put it in here but that's not gonna ever happen (laughs) i just it's just a good reminder that like stabler's at the very i mean not stabler benson's at the very beginning of this career and this is like a good point of that this is her first couple of cases that we're watching so they knock on the door and they're greeted by two police detectives that are from the original law and order um He's like, what are you doing here? Benson says, rape and assault. We're here to interview the best friend. They said, you're too late. She was just pulled out of a dumpster this morning. Stabler, claw hammer, early a.m. One of the detectives, yeah, what have you been reading? My notes? Benson, no, but you've been reading ours. Catch a, catch catch a, a break, break on the break case. On case. Stabler says, oh, yeah, your Vic was going to be our star witness. And then (laughs) we go back to Stabler's family house, which I'm just like so over these scenes. You don't want to know their backstory. (laughs) I'm like, keep your personal life personal. (laughs) So we go back to his house and... um. It's over breakfast, and Stabler's daughter's only eating plain yogurt, and he's noticing that she, you know, isn't, to him, eating a lot. So the mom, his wife, pulls him aside. All right, well, before that even happens, oh, um, yeah. 
Stabler had tried to get, he had like several different kinds of meat and is trying to get her to eat it with her yogurt, which is so disgusting to me. Like different types of meat. And she's like, no, that's all saturated fat. I'm not going to eat it. And I was like, you go, girl. (laughs) And then the wife pulls Stabler aside to the corner and asks, how long? And Stabler asks, how long has this been going on? And the mom says, the little anorexic and training routine? Weeks. It'd be great if you'd come home a little, you know. And Stabler's like, I do the best I can. And she goes, I know the caseload, honey, but I can't do it all alone. She listens to you. And then he says, I promise I'll be home. And then he goes up to the daughter and he goes, what do you say we talk about food? You know, nutrition? And she goes, no. But it's like, she is the one eating nutrition. (laughs) I was like, this is so weird. She's the one eating healthy. Anyways... So now we go back to the station and those original law and order guys are hanging out with them in their office. Um, and they are giving Craig in the rundown Stabler and Benson are, they said their Vic was found at the same time, same weapon um, as our wh- rape Vic. So we're talking about Vanessa Wong was found at the, about the same time with probably the same weapon as Jasmine. They were best friends. Rape kit came back positive for oral contact and huge amounts of Benazdrine. And Vanessa was found two blocks from the hospital. So it's obvious they were, like, hurt by the same person. They retrieved Jasmine's call record. She had called her mom, and she had called an apartment on the Upper East Side, Hampton Trill. And Munch knew Hampton Trill would be in the middle of all of this. Brat Pack Little Poser was published when he was 19. He thinks he's the Emil Zala of pre-millennial Manhattan. And then Emil Zala is nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1901 and 1902. Zola is definitely one of the greatest French authors of all time. Side so Reagan sends Munch to go talk to him since he's such a fan. And Stabler and Benson are going to go to the hospital and speak to the mom. So they walk into the hospital room and the mom says, basically, at this point, all they can do is pray because she's not in great shape. And she's still hooked up to the breathing machine. When she called her mom that night, she said the photographer was said some really mean things to her and that she wanted to get out of this business altogether. And the mom said, I told her she could come home anytime she wanted. So Benson's trying to get the background story. She's like, when did you guys separate? Talking about the mom and the husband and the dad. She said, right before Thanksgiving in 1997, it all started when Teresa was 13 and won $700 in the Miss Connectedy contest. That's when Tom decided Teresa was his ticket out. Everything that happened to her was his fault. While he's taking her to talent contests with no real job, he gets full custody. I'm working days at a glassware plant and nights at Walmart just to make ends meet. The courts say I'm unfit because I'm not home enough. 
we cut to the random court case they've like got to throw in where Monique is testifying in a court case where a son raped a woman, but the dad is also being charged because the son was raised in an environment that condoned rape. When they searched the home, they didn't find Playboy or Hustler magazine, but they found a comic book. And then you cut to the comic book, and it's literally called Rape Man. And it's about adventures of a high school boy. By night, he settles scores with women, beating and raping them, and he's considered the hero of the comic. And... That's it. I don't even think they show who won or lost. No, they just said basically it's in another language and you can tell, you know, just by looking at the pictures, what the content is. Yeah, that was really it. So now we're at Ham... What's Hampton? Trills apartment. He said he didn't answer the phone that night because he was having a party with 200 plus people. And they were like, what kind of party? You know, the ones where the litter and the... Glitterati. Size each other up over Cosmos and Shashimi? Sushimi. It was for his novel. Um, Jasmine did show up to the party. She was a mess. I was probably more of a mess. And then Munch just continues to insult his writing, saying he copies Joan Didion. Um, Cassidy says, so maybe Jasmine came to your party to score some crank. And he admits it's very possible. I met her in the elevator last spring. The first two floors are doctors and shrinks. And while they were saying that, like, two really cute, I think it was, like, two really cute young girls were, like, hanging out on his balcony. So he seems like a little player. Um, Then we go back to the photographer's studio doing another all-white shoot. Benson and, and Stabler are back at the photographer's studio. They go back to Carlo because they are there to tell them well, now Vanessa's dead was the whole point that they're going oh, back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they ask, I think they must have asked about why they left. Because the photographer, I mean, the assistant meant that they left to score. They left the studio to score. That Jasmine and Vanessa left. And the photographer says, shut it. And the assistant goes, why else would they go to a Hamilton party? They said, let's find out who's writing these prescriptions. Because as we said at the very beginning, she has a prescriptions for these in her bag when they drop her off. So they find out it's this doctor and his name is Dr. Deke O'Connor that he's been giving out speed like it's Halloween. So they go to visit oh. him. Right, to go to Jasmine and Vanessa. So they go visit him at the professional licensing services. And so they're like, hey, we're here to talk to Dr. O'Connor. And so they go walk up to a doctor who has a man in a wheelchair that he's pushing. 
outside on, on a rooftop on a right. rooftop <laughs> and they're like dr o'connor he's like no that's him so he turns the wheelchair around it's a man that's like and in um, that race not doesn't have full functioning brain like there's no way he was still practicing medicine yeah so then they tell us oh he was thrown from his motorcycle in 1997 so he hasn't been practicing medicine for at least two years at this point and then they go to the what was the company the company of where you so basically it seems like a new thing like a new you could file like get your prescriptions filled online essentially is what it seems like was happening which happens all the time now yeah it's called postal medic I'm assuming it was like a new thing in 1999. And he's saying he's, they like go to this place and Benson and Stabler talking to him. And he's saying everything's computerized for faster service, lower prices and few errors. And Benson says, depends on how you define error. And you do a lot of work with Dr. O'Connor and he goes yeah is that a problem if by problem you mean he gets his meals intra <laughs> I don't know what I wrote <laughs> and dumps in a diaper yes that's something that the coroner pharmacist may have questioned just tell and then he's like oh fuck okay just tell me what you want Benson says O'Connor's patient list and he immediately already had it printed out somehow. <laughs> hands it oh, over. Oh, this right here. And Benson immediately goes, dozens of pills, yet all the prescriptions are sent to the exact same address. This didn't strike you as odd. And then he admits, I guess we need to upgrade our software. So now we go back to Cragen's office. How you pointed out that the candy's still on his desk. The guy has an addiction to red vines, as we will see. He, he has tells- a prescription, or <laughs> they were just forking up enough money for that product placement. <laughs> they, yeah, they really needed some product placement. So he tells Benson and Stabler that narcotics is called twice. He said, you crash-landed in a c- controlled substance investigation. investigation that they've been cooking up since July. Stabler says, this is still a sexual assault case. We're only going after the pills to get the attacker. Cragen, you got the pills. You got to tell narcotics. Benson. He says, tell narcotics. They, all they always want to do is make crappy little possession busts. We can't do that. Zero tolerance makes witnesses shut right up. So Cragen's like, I may be able to buy you a couple of days on narcotics. They love strategy meetings. I'll schedule one with them and then keep postponing. So the address of the pills go to a P.O. box where Cassidy and Munch go to see, like, who owns this. It's clearly a fake name. His name was Bernard Small. And the address was not a real address. It would have landed you in the middle of the Hudson River. And the guy didn't really care to, like, help them and they just said all right we're gonna stick an officer here to see who comes and get it so that's what they did so then we flash to an interrogation room with stabler and benson are interviewing this guy he's like a young kid basically 
clearly innocent, like wouldn't have had anything to do with any of these people. Um, and he said he's a courier. He gets paid a hundred bucks a week after they threaten him with a murder charge. He said his buddy set him up. He repackages the envelopes that he gets from the PO box and does a return address to Morgan talent management. And they're like, well, what are the uh, cross streets? And they, he says, and then they were like, that's Laszlo's building. So now Benson and Stabler tell Cragen, bring in the narcos, basically. They didn't use that word, but that's what they said. So then we flash to the entire squad, like narco squad, busting into Laszlo's fancy office with guns ablazing and... <laughs> handcuffing literally every single person. <laughs> like, there's no guns going off, but yeah, they have them. Well, I just, if I see a gun, I feel like it's blazing. It's, like, offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they, they offer to take her out of the back because the paparazzi are there. And they'll want her to talk about Jasmine. She agreed. And so then the next shot is her in the interrogation room at the station. And she's admitting she doesn't sell speed for profit. It keeps the girls in fighting trim. To them, it's like vitamins. If you raise a stink, you lose them to another agency. And then they're like, oh, is that why Jasmine and Vanessa were attacked? Because they raised a fuss. And she admits that she knew more than she was letting on because then she says Carlo, the photographer, had a private Polaroid collection of himself with models. And Benson says, doing what? And she goes, do I have to spell it out for you? And Benson says, yes. He made her Lewinsky him for his collection. Then he refused to give it to her and he refused to use her on the shoot. And she got pretty pissed off. And she asked, have you seen them? Meaning the photos. No, Jasmine just told me she stole them. She stole all of them. She said she was going to use them to make sure he never worked again. The next thing I heard was she was in the emergency room. So then we go back to see the like original Law & Order guys. And they're kind of like helping them at this point in the investigation. They throw something down and they say, are you looking at the fruits of four, you're looking at the fruits of four hours of dumpster diving along 59th street, nine dumpsters in all. Stabler says the two of yous went dumpster diving. Hell no. We supervised a couple of uniforms. I don't do disposable divers. And then they go back to the photographer's studio and he says, I didn't invite you in. (laughs) And they go, here's our invitation, Carlo, warrants. They show him the warrants. Stabler. Guys, why don't you start with the kitty porn search? We're going to ask Mr. Whatever a few questions. And then Munch goes, why don't you ask him who dresses him? Actually, I think Cassidy said that. Like, it's such a nerd. (laughs) He's such, like... Yeah, those two are like the comic relief at this show. Benson goes, we know all about your Polaroids. 
we know how badly you wanted them back after they were stolen. And he goes, I have thousands of Polaroids. I'm a photographer. Yeah, and Larry Flint's a publisher, Munch. Said. Yeah. <laughs> so they pull him aside and try to get him to confess, and they talk about how frustrated it must have been and how this would ruin his career if these Polaroids get out. And, and he's, he's like, I didn't murder anyone. How about statutory rape, then? You made Jasmine set for her oral exams. He said, that's he, ridiculous. Well, then the blood sample will give us, will give you the clear. And he's like, what? And they go, there was a stain on her dress. And he said, that was a consensual act. <laughs> So Benson finds a photo album. So they start going through his um, file cabinet. And she's like, finds this little fake back to it. And she finds this photo album. And it shows the assistant lady that we had referred to earlier with Measuring Man. She and him used to be engaged. There are all these photos of them, and they look so lovey-dovey, and they notice the ring on the finger, and so they're like, oh, now they're business partners. And they figured if you found the Polaroids, you'd show them to the one person who was his ex-fiance and now his business partner, meaning they knew that those girls went to her name. The assistant's name is Deborah knew that they would go to Deborah with those because she would be the one who would want to see them. And so then we cut to the interrogation room with Deborah, and then they're asking her, how would you know the girls were at the book party? And she says, I guess they mentioned it. Benson said, or you were there. And Stabler said, you went there looking for them, trying to get... Carlo's Polaroid collection back and she denies everything and doesn't want to talk they grab her and said they just need to fingerprint her and book her and she's like what why and then this is where they trick her they go we have another witness it's and then they, they pull her out and it's Carlo sitting there but he actually hasn't talked either and then she, as soon as she sees him, she thinks he ratted her out. So she tries to spit and she yells, bastard. <laughs> and he goes, you couldn't keep your big mouth shut. And she says, and you couldn't keep your pants set. Then they pull her back into the interrogation room. And she goes, you know, you know who he was when I met him? He was Carl Parsley. SVU, like, loves a name change. Cause we We've have, already seen a name change in basically every episode. And now we have two. He, and then she says, he used to photograph stereos for electronic store ads, and I fell for him. And I was big then, then too. Cosmo, L, Harper's Bazaar. And I'd say, if you want me, you have to use Carlo. And Benson's like, so you gave him this start, like, encouraging her. 
And she goes, yes, beauty is power until you lose it and you're garbage. Nobody gives a damn about you. So you wouldn't understand that, Detective Benson, because you're still a beautiful woman. You have no idea what kind of doors that opens for you until they're slammed in your face. And then, I don't know if we mentioned this, but Deborah's never taken her sunglasses off. They're really chic, so I don't blame her, but she takes off her glasses and reveals a tiny scar under her eye. I, I mean, mean, well, one eye did look different than the other. But it... Like, she wasn't symmetrical anymore, basically. But it was not bad. It wasn't like she was burned, like, the last episode where the lady was, you know, had acid thrown on her. And then Benson or Stabler, one of them, asked Measuring Man, and she goes... Yeah, but what what happened after was worse. People stopped calling. Everyone shuns you. But I still had Carlo. At least I thought I did. So it's almost like, was her and Carlo still engaged? And she had no idea that he was doing all of this? Because it almost seems like that. The only reason I would think that they're not engaged anymore is because, like, why would that album be hidden? In that, like, secret compartment. Well, why would that album ever be hidden? I don't know if they just want to act like they're... I don't know. But, um, they go, so Jasmine and, Ves- and Vanessa found you and at Trill's party? And she says yes. And they had photos with them. She said she had them nearby, but I didn't believe her because I didn't believe Carla would do that kind of thing. And they're like, but you're curious, curious enough to have a look. So what? You meet them in a car and then they show you the photos. And she goes, they were far worse than I heard. There were a lot of girls, a lot of girls, beautiful women, women that I've known for years, women that I've trusted and they are like betraying you with your fiance. I, and then she's like, I don't remember what happened. Stabler throws down the hammer they found in the dumpster dive. And she looks up at them. And then she, her face kind of changes, like her expression and body. And she goes, she fails one way in and that little bitch takes away the last shred of dignity I have. I was livid and cranked up on speed. I reached down to take the hammer just for security. You know, that's why it's there. And, and then the hammer makes an awful cracking sound as it hits Ah. Jasmine's teeth. And then there's like dead silence Then Vanessa started screaming and I swung at her to shut her up. And then she just starts convulsing like it's like she's some kind of epileptic. And then they go, but Jasmine was sexually abused. And she goes, yeah, that was later. That was Carlo's idea. And Stabler goes, so you brought Carlo into this? She goes, yeah, because Carlo is very level headed. Carlo always knows what to do. Carlo's Carlo was the one that said it should look like rape. It was horrible. We dropped her off at the hospital, and I don't know what he did with that dead girl. 
And they were like, well, why did you even call him after his betrayal? He was all I had. And then the music plays. And you want to take us away? Dun, 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 dun. She says, but you can never turn back the clock, can you? And then they ask about Jasmine. They're like, how is she? And they said, she didn't make it. So now it's a murder. Double murder. So when we first started this two episodes ago, Maka gave us a history of 1999. And we basically relived that, not just through fashion, but you mentioned how Brandy Chastain scored the winning goal and the Women's World Cup was won by the U.S. And that happened again yesterday. So, life is entertaining. I mean, I think the most exciting thing is for all women and all the soccer teams because they did so well. And I feel like... A meme I saw today. Well, America's the only one who calls it soccer, so it's kind of stupid. But we're aware that America sucks in this way. We just, like, take things and change it. But um, I just thought this meme was funny. So from now on, it's just called soccer and men's soccer, right? Because in the U.S., the women pull the fucking weight when it comes to soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. So hopefully now this will result in a little bit more of equal pay because I think even the guys, I don't think, I know that even the U.S. men have been saying, you know, they sell out stadiums, they win. A, the guys if, didn't even go last if, time. If the men, if the U.S. men's team had won the World Cup, they would each get paid a million dollars. The U.S. women's team have won. This is their fourth World Cup they've won. They're each getting 200000 So that's our hope for this. What thing are you obsessed with this week? What are you loving? Um, maybe that show Euphoria. <laughs> Are you for? I don't even know what it's called, but it's so good on HBO. Yeah. It look. It does it have a whole bunch of different storylines, or is it following like one character? It's like f. It's following a few characters, but it's just so good. It took a really weird turn yesterday and no one I know watches it so I have no one to talk about it (laughs) how many episodes have there been I think yesterday was the third or fourth episode okay my thing is this mega babe it is a thigh rescue anti-chafe stick it's with aloe, pomegranate, and grapeseed oil. And you will love it because it's cruelty-free. They don't test on animals. Um, tested on mega babes, never on animals is what it says on the back. And so this is great. For some reason, the ending got deleted. Um, but I just wanted to hop on and say, as my four-year-old niece would say, 
Have a day. Hey, Nick. Can you say SVU? SVU. SVU. <laughs> Can you say Law and Order? Law and Order.